WHMP. Welcome to Talk the Talk. I'm Bill Newman. And I'm Buzz Eisenberg. And we welcome back to our show, the District Attorney for the Northwestern District. That's Franklin and Hampshire Counties, Dave Sullivan. Mr. District Attorney, thanks so much for being with us. So much to ask you about today, but I'd like to start by going back to last Sunday and the hot chocolate run for safe passage. You were there. You participated. However unlikely that might be, you did. You made the, what was it, five miles? No, it wasn't even close. I did the walk. It was three kilometers, so you can do that in your sleep. But uh, yeah, it was a wonderful uh, occasion because the whole community, I think there was over 7,000 participants and you know, people just come out in droves and it's for such a good cause. And you did. I, I knew I was pulling your leg a bit about how far you went, but you participated. And it's a community event. And I think it's quite astounding the way this community supports people who have needs. We look at the Cancer Connection. We look at uh, the March for the Food Bank of Western Massachusetts. We look at this hot chocolate run. It's really a very generous and giving community. And I'm wondering, as the leaders in law enforcement uh, and as a community leader writ large, what your thoughts about that are? I think it's the community that really makes Hampshire County what it is, uh, and, and also Franklin County. Um, we come together, we, we take care of our neighbors, and that's the important thing is that people aren't just kind of alone, that there's uh, community support there, and this is a clear indication. I ran in the first hot chocolate, I didn't know, realize it was 20 years, so 20 years ago, uh, there was maybe 150, 200 people at the race, and it's just grown exponentially and in such good ways uh, that not only do people learn about domestic violence and about that in intimate partner violence, but also they can give back. They can give to the, those folks that are survivors uh, and victims of domestic violence in such a good way. So District Attorney Dave Sullivan, has there been a change from where you sit, from your perspective as District Attorney, in either public awareness and or law enforcement response or otherwise to the scourge of domestic violence? I really think that there has, but I think that the awareness has really sunk in over time. And I have to say that in schools, the ones that really take it seriously and talk about healthy relationships and about respect for people, that's where the real change is going to happen in the long run. It's, it's working with our youth really from third, fourth grade all the way through high school so that people respect uh, other people and uh, they don't go to that domestic violence uh, uh situation. So I think over the long run, it's, it's worked well. And uh, uh, I think as far as interdiction, we take it very seriously. So, you know, since I've been there, I mean, we have both prevention, but we also have prosecution for domestic violence offenders. And, and hopefully we get people into batterers counseling and, and other programs that are going to make sure that they don't reoffend. From your perspective, District Attorney, has there been a change in the Incidents, and by that I mean the number of incidents of domestic violence, or do we not know? And I'm talking about the last, you know, 15, 20 years. Um, statistically, it's gone down, but it's such an underreported crime that most people suffer in silence. They, they don't report the, the violence that they're experiencing in a household, so you really don't know what the exact figures are. But at least statistically, it has gone down to some degree. And I have to say that Hampshire and Franklin County, 
um, when they did the long-term study, a 15-year study, and mind you, it was back in 2013, that we had the two lowest uh, per capita rates of domestic or intimate partner um, homicides. So we've tried to maintain that, uh, and, and, it, and I think we still are the two lowest in the Commonwealth as far as uh, th those type of murders that happen. Spend a minute with us telling us, telling us about how uh, the district attorney's office relates to this uh, uh, issue of domestic violence, either in terms of prevention and or in terms of prosecution? What do you do? Well, the sad part is with law enforcement and with our office, it's usually more of a response than it is. You'd love to prevent more, <clears throat> but a lot of it is our immediate response. We have a program where uh, Advocates go out that night, meet with the, the victims of domestic violence uh, to get them safety plans to make sure that they, you know, affiliate with uh, Safe Passage or with Nelquit up in Franklin County. We want to make sure that people know what their rights are and also find a safe place. Uh, and many people don't have a place to go back to that if that offender is let out on bail, um, they don't really have a safe place to go. So, you know, the first... Uh, responses uh, for safety. Um, and then also, uh, when we look at our prosecutions, we want that offender to change. And I know that you, you see a billboard coming into Northampton now. It's a call for change. And that was started uh, by one of our task force, uh, the Southern Hilltowns uh, task force, where offenders can now call to seek help to, to not, you know, violate uh, people's uh, rights and to, to do that type of damage uh, that physical violence or even emotional violence can cause. So when we look at uh, people coming into court, we want that individual to change. If it's a more serious one where it's attempted murder, it is um, strangulation, those type of uh, very serious felonies, um, then we, we keep it on that prosecution track and, and hopefully we're going to come to a resolution where that person won't reoffend. But some of these uh, assaults are very serious, and, uh, and that's where we send those cases to Superior Court for a more serious review and, and actually uh, a sentence. Uh, District Attorney Sullivan, I have to ask you about the Rahimi case, which was before the Supreme Court last month, I believe the United States Supreme Court, um, it involved a uh, person, this fellow... Rahimi, who allegedly assaulted his girlfriend uh, because of the um, uh, Violence Against Women's Act from 1994, people are prohibited uh, from having a gun if they are charged if they have a domestic violence protective order, such as the TROs that we issue here in Massachusetts. And uh, this guy kept a gun, nevertheless, even after the restraining order, and he even fired it when bystanders were watching. And the Supreme and the Fifth Circuit said that that rule is unconstitutional because the Second Amendment uh, is being violated. What are your thoughts? I think it's a, a really, really serious uh, case. I think that the precedent could, that could be set where uh, somebody who has a domestic violence uh, allegation and it's in court can no longer have his or her weapons taken temporarily, at least. It's not permanent but at least temporarily, uh, it, it would open up the floodgates for many, many um, serious offenses in the future. So I think that uh, the, the case is, is really should be 
that you have to weigh the balance, and the balance is safety of an individual over somebody's rights to a, a firearm for that particular moment in time, whether it, the case is six months, the restraining order is six months or a year. Uh, let's wait. Um, it's just like any other kind of red flag law that those restraining orders are there to protect, and taking that weapon away from that uh, person is very important. Especially given that uh, for so many instances of domestic violence, the allegations are it's an anger management problem. It's, it's just at that moment they couldn't restrain themselves. And I got a good idea. Let's give them a gun at that moment, right? Yeah. You know, domestic violence is about power and control. It's about that offender that wants the power over the individual, wants to control that individual. Um, and anger management is a minor part of it. It's really about those uh, concepts that, that happen uh, in a household. And, you know, there's many things uh, in addition to physical violence. It's emotional, it's financial. There's just an incredible amount of coercion and control that happens in uh, unhealthy relationships. District Attorney Dave Sullivan, the order for a alleged uh, offender or the person who has been accused of domestic violence and is subject to a restraining order. Uh, it is customary. It is absolutely routine in Massachusetts, and I believe in almost every other state, for the court to order that the guns that the person might own be turned into law enforcement. Is that right, and how does it work? Well, there is a hearing. There is due process that uh, a hearing is held before uh, a local judge, um, and the determina determination is whether um, there is a serious likelihood of, uh, of harm, uh, of substantial harm. And uh, I think that's very important to remember is that there is that due process before a restraining order is issued, except, you know, on a temporary, ba very temporary basis when there's an emergency temp uh, restraining order. But for that order to go into effect <clears throat> for more than 10 days, there needs to be a full hearing in front of a judge and uh, and that's, I think, very important for folks to know that the, these weapons will not be seized without due process. And I think it's essential for the safety of the individuals and safety of the community that this individual not possess those um, firearms while uh, the case is pending. So at the risk of uh, exposing my naivete about this, the judge makes an order the alleged offender is in front of the court. The victim is probably there with an advocate. Everyone has lawyers. And what I would like to know is a very practical question. How are the guns retrieved? How does law enforcement take possession of them? Uh, they, obviously, they know that there's a firearm because you have to have a license that they go out to the home with the individual and make sure that the weapons are secured. So it's not like they say to the the, the uh the person that who the restraining orders against to, to give the weapons up that, hey, go home and you know, bring them in later. You know, they go out to the home with that individual and, and make sure that they are secure. We are speaking with District Attorney Dave Sullivan, the District Attorney for the Northwestern District, that's Hampshire and Franklin Counties. When we come back, I have two really important topics that we are going to talk to the district attorney about. First, there are two new openings at the Supreme Judicial Court unexpectedly. What is the governor going to do? Who will those appointments be? And what are the crimes that actually are being committed and prosecuted here in our communities? We'll be right back.
listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg. Find local news and local talk for the Valley. It wasn't necessary and it probably wasn't even appropriate on the one hand. I don't want that to sound like I don't support schools. I have a long history of supporting schools, certainly longer than any one of those city councilors. Where the heart of the Pioneer Valley lives. 1015 and 1400 WHMP News, Information and the Arts. You've been miserable with joint pain for so long. You want and deserve relief, but you just keep putting off that call to QC Kinetics. Okay, now's the time. Listen up. QC Kinetics is rolling out something huge for the first time ever. It's a voucher for $500 off your first joint pain treatment. That's right, $500 off. Whether it's your knees, hips, shoulder, or back, the QC Kinetics voucher applies to any area. But this is a limited time offer, so no more putting off that call. QC Kinetics is the largest regenerative clinic in the country with tens of thousands of satisfied patients who are able to get lasting relief with no surgery, no drugs, and no downtime. So reach out to the team at QC Kinetics today and ask them, how can I get a $500 off voucher? They'll walk you through the steps and get you started on your way to relief. Don't wait. This is a limited time offer. Call for your free consultation today. QC Kinetics, 413-992-5450. That's 413-992-5450. 413-992-5450. Limited time only. Not valid with any other offer. Maybe you still have your copy of a favorite long ago book like I do about Mickey Mantle signed by my Uncle Bill, Hanukkah 1958. A book can make a lasting impression. Something Someday is the new picture book by the presidential inaugural poet Amanda Gorman. Get it at Broadside Bookshop. For middle grade and elementary readers, Percy Jackson and the Olympians, The Chalice of the Gods. Order any book on the Broadside website. Have it delivered anywhere or pick it up at the store, then browse a bit. Broadside, Northampton's independent bookshop. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg, WHMP. And we continue our conversation with District Attorney Dave Sullivan. While we were off air, the District Attorney and Buzz and I and Dan were talking about uh, somewhat of a misstatement that I made just before we uh, did leave you for a minute, and that was about lawyers being present at these hearings regarding domestic violence. Could you clarify that for us, please? Oh, sure. Dave Sullivan? Yeah. Uh, these hearings, uh, civil hearings uh, for restraining orders, are usually heard in either the district court or in probate and family court. And in those circumstances, uh, they usually don't have representation. Usually it's uh, two pro se people, unrepresented, that go before the judge, tell their uh the facts of the case, and then a judge decides. However, in criminal cases, there's a serious charge against someone. They've been they're being arraigned, uh, and the prosecutor may move for dangerousness or uh, that these uh, weapons be as a condition of bail. So, uh, and that is where uh, a an offender would be represented by counsel, and you know could litigate that on their behalf. And uh, the victim, so to speak, uh, the prosecutor would be on the other side. Um, so that would be the attorney that would be representing the Commonwealth. And one more clarification, uh, Dave Sullivan, that when you say uh, move for dangerousness, that's a separate collateral hearing. Yeah, it's under our uh, our statute, uh, 123.58a, and, uh, and that's a very extensive hearing that's required uh, to be able to, A, get dangerousness, um, less of a standard to, to take uh, a weapon temporarily as a condition of bail. 
and dangerousness if a dangerous hearing results in a finding that the person accused is dangerous that person can be held for what 60 days uh, without bail pending trial 120 days yeah 120 days and so that, and that can get extended if you know if the prosecutor actually uh, as a defendant uh, has that attorney, that t- criminal defense attorney, to build the case? It may take more than 120 days, so it could be extended, you know, as a matter of uh, uh, continuances that are requested. Where the person will be held in jail pending trial. Yes. Let's come back to this in future times. This is a really important topic, and I think people want to know a lot about it. And I think it's really helpful for you to share this information sure. with the community. Uh, Dave Sullivan, I would like to turn to another topic. Unexpectedly, in the last very recent period of time, it has been announced that there are going to be two vacancies at the Supreme Judicial Court, which I think Governor Healy was not expecting. Tell us about that and what you expect the governor to do in terms of in uh, terms of appointments. Uh, two uh, Supreme Court uh, justices, associate justices, uh, Justice Lowy and Justice Seifer uh, have announced their early retirement. Uh, usually the, the justices would serve until the mandatory age of 70. Um, so uh, Governor Healy has an opportunity to appoint two uh, Supreme Court justices. And um, I've raised the issue and I've reached out to uh, Congressman Neal, Neal's office and to the bar associations for regional diversity, which is required by law that our uh, judges have that regional diversity. So this should be an opportunity uh, for Western Mass to have one of uh, our sisters or brothers uh, uh, in the uh, in the legal profession to be appointed um, to that court, and, and I think that it's really necessary that Western Mass have this. Uh, we have a tradition of great Supreme Court justices. Chief Justice Ireland was from Springfield, Justice Graney from Westfield, and Justice uh, Spina from Pittsfield. So. Uh, we have a great deal of legal talent here, some very uh, able and intelligent uh, attorneys, and I think uh, it won't be a problem to, to select somebody from Western Miss. Could you just follow on that, D.A. Sullivan? Why do you think it's important that this region have somebody with an understanding of this region on the Supreme Judicial Court? The Judicial Court should be of the people and by the people, and the unique characteristics of Western Mass, uh, its, its regional uh, talents, uh, our regional resources. I don't think people understand Western Mass and, and about how important it is for the court to reflect that. And uh, I think that uh, by selecting somebody from Western Mass, they're going to have that sensitivity. I don't think it's going to make a difference when it comes to the law, but it's going to make a difference as they look at the facts of a case and, and how it how it turns. I mean, when we look at, and I'm going to give Bill a, a really great compliment, we've had outstanding criminal defense attorneys that certainly could have been on the Supreme Judicial Court. Uh, there's been prosecutors, there's people in the civil bar that uh, have, have risen. You know, Justice Graney was a housing court judge and, and rose up. So there's also uh, judges that are currently sitting on the bench, whether it's district court, appellate court, that, that should have that clear opportunity. As we all know, things are kind of biased when it comes to uh, leadership in our state that you know they don't look beyond 495. So I'd really see that as a, a real, um, and I think that uh, Governor Healy has been very sensitive to Western Mass. She's made more trips out here than I think most people can really, um, they really appreciate it when, they, when she's out here for when we had the floods 
when we've had uh, different activities. She was there for the, the hunger march with Monty uh, a couple weeks ago. So um, I, I think that this is a great opportunity for Western Mass to be reflected on the Supreme Court bench. And I think with Tara Jacobs, we have a really strong voice in the Governor's Council. Yep. I am uh, moved by your comments, District Attorney, but they have not been realized in recent years. This geographic diversity is not an issue that has resonated uh, in Boston, certainly not with Governor Baker. And I'm wondering if you really are optimistic that there is going to be geographic diversity as a significant consideration in the appointment of these two Supreme, Supreme Judicial Court justices. Well, we always hear from our governors that they're very sensitive to Western Mass, but that we don't see it in action. I think we've seen it in action with uh, uh, Governor Healy in her first year in office. That and, and Lieutenant Governor Driscoll. Yeah, and Lieutenant Governor Driscoll. So I'm very optimistic there. Uh, you were just too conservative to be on the bench, Bill. So, I mean, I, I know. <laughs> and he's Thank too you. old. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you, Buzz, for that addition. Jeez, um, and I thought Bill was 55. I thought you had 15 years before you reached mandatory retirement. But, uh, you know. Thank you, Dave. uh, David Sullivan. I really appreciate that. Uh, I'd like to spend a few minutes, if we might, talking about what your office is focused on and what kind of cases are being prosecuted. Everyone knows the district attorney prosecutes, but the question that I have for you is, what are the cases that your office spends most of its time and energy devoted to? So we have two breakdowns of of crimes uh, in, in the district. One is the felonies. I'd say the the four five percent of crimes that get prosecuted in the superior court, they're major felonies. Um, we don't have a lot of murders. If there's one or two or three in a given year, um, that's probably the the high point. I think was maybe three homicides in one year, um, rapes, uh, sexual assaults, uh, the ones that um, really are very serious. Um, so those are in superior court. And then the rest of the cases are in district court or juvenile court. And juvenile court, very small. We don't have a, a really big juvenile caseload because we do a lot of diversions there and we really try to help juveniles um, get out of the system. And actually, I think over 50% of our juvenile cases are diversions. So they don't even step before the judge. We, we take care of it uh, you know, without even going before a judge. Um, but the majority of the ones in district court, I would say that domestic violence, the ones that... Um, they're, they're serious, uh, however, they haven't reached the, 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 the point where they need to go up to Superior Court for uh, a major sentence. Um, so I would say domestic violence is big, and um, OUIs uh, operating under the influence of drugs or alcohol have always been big um, due to, I think, A, um, you know, people drink too much, get on the road, but also the rural nature of it is like, hey, it's a lot easier if you live in a city, you hop on a subway, you know, you just see more... OUIs in rural areas than you do in uh, an urban setting. Um, I would like to ask you, David Sullivan, um, back when we had a plebiscite, uh, on the ballot was a question of whether or not marijuana should be decriminalized here in Massachusetts, and you and then Attorney General Maura Healy were famously opposed to it, and your arguments were principally twofold, if I remember correctly. One was OUI, that is operating under the influence of marijuana. You were concerned that that would be increased as a result of liberalizing our, our marijuana laws. And two, you were worried about children being uh, having greater access. Uh, and now, with hindsight being such as it is, has your view changed? 
Yeah, I think it's it's okay to, it, for it to be legal. I still have the concern. I think the the marijuana rate's gone up. I mean, as you look at the, the marijuana the, in, uh, driving while in no uh, with teenagers, you know, oh, I think teenagers. it's more acceptable, and I think uh, we're going to see the long term results of that. And you know, when you're smoking four or five days a week as a teenager, it's not going to help your brain development. So you know, I, on that one, I, I think that's the the negative. I think on the on the positive side is that. Um, it's really freedom, you know, freedom of expression, and, uh, and and I don't think there's been any long-term consequences behind crime. We we have seen the number of people under the influence of drugs uh, go up. Um, it's just not a provable case. There's no way to really prove that somebody has you know taken that within an hour or two hours. As you know, marijuana stays in the system and the muscles and everything for up to 30 days. So there's really no way to, to calculate uh, that and, and how it impairs the road. Um, so, you know, I think that, uh, you know, overall, I think any time that you can decriminalize something that's widely in society, I think you tell people, hey, you know, we respect what you're doing, you know, and, and again, with any kind of alcohol or drug, just do it in a safe place, don't drive. Could you go back, District Attorney, to something you just mentioned, if I heard you correctly, that some 95% of the cases that your office prosecutes are not in Superior Court, only 5% or approximately are, and that therefore 95% are either in District Court or Juvenile Court? Did I hear you correctly? Yes. Yep. And those cases in District Court that you referred to, OUIs, operating under the influence, uh, and some in domestic violence. What are the other uh, most frequently prosecuted crimes here in Franklin and Hampshire County? Um, the vast majority are motor vehicle offenses, uh, operating with a suspended license, uh, you know, reckless driving, uh, those type of offenses. Um, and I have to say that the way that we look at it is that we want to get people out of that spiral of suspended licenses. So what we usually do is divert it, give them three or six months to straighten it out, come back, and we'll dismiss the case. And so about 40% of all the criminal uh, cases that come into district court are either dismissed or diverted. So we, we try to make sure that folks can turn their uh, driving record around or if it's a minor offense like trespassing, disorderly conduct, disturbing of the peace, we, we try to divert those so people don't end up with criminal records that impair their ability to get work or be in a profession such as nursing, uh, those type of offenses. So, uh, so I'm proud of the fact that we now divert uh, 40 to, yeah, it's usually 38 to 42 percent of all our cases every year are diverted or dismissed. Before we go, explain a bit more, if you would, please. What do you mean by diversion or diverting a case? We have a, a large amount of discretion. And so even before the case is called in court, where for the first time the charges are read, we'll take a look at it and we'll say, oh, that's an offense, uh, let's just say, uh, minor in possession of alcohol. Um, we'll just say, okay, we're not going to call this into court, but we're going to talk to that person. Maybe they need a uh, an alcohol education program, or maybe um, they just need to pay a small fine. Uh, we just don't want it to go forward into court. So that's where our diversions come into play. Um, and for the, our juveniles, it's really important that folks aren't spending time going into juvenile court, but maybe maybe a community service or 
some type of counseling would work better. Um, I have to say, with our juvenile um, justice unit, it's really about rehabilitation, but more importantly, it's about being there, learning your lesson, and moving on. And that's what most juvenile cases involve. It's one and done, and we just want to treat it that way. And as a legal mechanism, the case is either diverted before arraignment or after arraignment, and then what happens? What happens to the case? It, it goes to um, a diversion specialist. We have a diversion specialist in juvenile court, and our drug, uh, uh, our, our diversion program for drugs um, goes to a, uh, what we call a drug diversion treatment uh, program, where they, uh, they are given a choice of two different providers in the community, CSO, uh, CDH, uh, CHD, Center for Human Development, or clinical support options. They see a clinician, they, they meet with a recovery coach. Um, they're, they're put into a situation uh, where if they complete the, uh, the program that these uh, prescribers give them, after six months we dismiss the case. So they don't have that uh, drug offense on their record. District Attorney Dave Sullivan, thanks so much for your time and insight. We really appreciate you being with us. Great. Thanks, Bill. Thanks, Buzz. And, and congratulations on completing that hot chocolate walk. At three kilometers. It was, a, it was an uphill battle, but I did it, you know? We're going to have you walk next year, too, Bill, okay? <laughs> Thank you. Okay. Appreciate that. Yep, I know. is Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg. For WHMP News, I'm Jess Tyler. The decision on whether to approve a nearly $10 million borrowing authorization increase for renovations to the Jones Library in Amherst is being delayed. Town councilors say they want to see a revised agreement with library trustees that ensures taxpayers won't have to foot the bill. Councilors met Monday night and listened to more than an hour of public comment before deciding to postpone the vote until December 18th. Town Manager Paul Bockelman told councillors the project can't go out to bid in early January without the revised borrowing authorization, which needs support from at least nine councillors. The son of the late Yankee Candle founder Michael Kittredge wants to turn his estate into a several hundred unit housing development, according to the Gazette. The Kittredge estate spans hundreds of acres and includes a water park, tennis courts, collector car garages, a golf course and multiple houses. The proposed development would connect to the Amherst water and sewer system and require major renovations to the surrounding roads and infrastructure. Joshua Wallach, the Kittredge family's development manager, is expected to provide an overview at the planning board meeting on December 13th at 7 p.m. at Town Hall. Smith Vocational High School is launching a campaign to raise $750,000 needed to rebuild the horticulture building. The school has secured nearly $6 million through insurance settlements and grants. The previous building, which housed the school's forestry education program, burned down in May 2022 after a rotting mower's exhaust came into contact with combustible materials. A bit of sun and clouds this morning, and that's going to be the trend all week, but cooler temperatures are on the horizon. High temperatures today in the high 30s and low 40s. As we head into the overnight, those temperatures dip down into the 20s, mainly the mid to high 20s for our low temperatures, and conditions are going to stay similar in the overnight, some partial cloud cover. I'm Jack Wood with the 22 News Storm Team on 101.5 WHMP. I'm Tony Warden, President and Chief Executive Officer of Greenfield Cooperative Bank. 
I want to wish everyone a happy holiday season and a safe and healthy new year. Hi, this is Stacy from the Residential Loan Department at Greenfield Cooperative Bank. Hi, this is Melissa, loan processor at the co-op. Hi, this is Brittany. I'm also a loan processor at GCB. We'd like to wish our friends, family, and customers a very Merry Christmas and a Happy New Year. Hello, this is Aaron from South Hadley and Courtney from Northampton. We're wishing you a joyful holiday and a new year full of happiness and good health. Hi, this is Mandy. And this is Rachelle from, from Greenfield Cooperative Bank. Bank. Wishing you and yours a Merry Christmas, Happy Hanukkah, and all the other holidays you may celebrate this season. Hello, I'm James Alexander, Vice President and Commercial Lender located in Shelburne Falls. I want to wish everyone a happy and safe holiday season from the Greenfield Cooperative Bank. Hi, this is Chris Wilkie from the Greenfield Cooperative Bank. Wishing you all a safe and happy holiday season. Last summer, Whalen Insurance finally did what a lot of insurance agencies around New England had done long ago. We partnered with a call center to handle routine things like a change of address. It went okay, but we're not going to continue. We found out that no matter how simple or complicated the matter at hand, you prefer to talk to us. As one longtime Whalen Insurance client told me, the people at the call center are great, but they're not Amy. I like knowing I can call and talk to Amy every time. I guess I should have known. Local people and local service are what sets Whalen Insurance apart from those big 1-800 insurance companies. When you want a quote, when you need help with a claim, or anything else, just call. Or come to our office on King Street. Talk to Amy, or Kelly, or Mindy, or Valerie, or Lori. We tried the call center, you tried the call center, and we found out that you prefer talking to us. Whalen Insurance. Local people, local service, local insurance. Call 586 1000. And this is Cool Films with Florence based Emmy Award winning filmmaker Larry Hutt, who has for us today. Two really interesting films that he and I have been talking about. Larry Hott, let me ask you to name the films and tell us what we're going to hear and see. Well, we have never done this before on this show, but we're going to review two films with exactly the same name, except one of them has an exclamation point. The two films are <laughs> Bella and Bella. <laughs> and, How beautiful. And one is about Bella Abzug the famous congressperson from New York, and the other one is about Bella Lewitsky, who you might not know about, but she was famous in her time as a dancer from California. And their two lives intersect where? At the House Un-American Activities Committee in the 1950s. Bella Abzug, what a character. You can imagine what she would say about what's going on in Congress now. What's going on in Congress? Dysfunctional Congress can't yet even get their act together to support Ukraine against Putin. Can you imagine? Bella Abzug was famous for railing against the Vietnam War. We're going to hear a clip in a second. Her voice was unmistakable. Her style. She had these hats for years after Bella Abzug was in Congress Feminists across America were wearing these big floppy hats in her honor. And I remember my mother, who was a prominent feminist in New York, never went anywhere without a Bella Abzug hat. Well, let's hear a clip from this film called Bella with an exclamation point. Bella! 
Do you know me? Let's make this political power structure ours. It's because of the killing of the spirit and the meaning and the belief of American democracy that I do impeach the president of the United States. When Bella first ran, it was considered such a unicorn event. There just weren't that many women running. She was blunt, she was candid, she was hoping the beast. Walking in the street with Bella, people would be yelling, give him hell, Bella. If a doorman or a taxi driver said something she disagreed with, she would argue with him, because she really cared. I wanted her to get elected because we desperately needed her voice. So I went out with her on this truck. That people have to live. People have a fundamental right to eat. When she got to Washington, it was an explosion. Are you suggesting to me that all of your files of the CIA are presently in the possession of the FBI? I refuse to have you say we are arbitrarily acting in this regard, Madam Chairman. Also for a lot of... Some of the voices you hear in this film Hillary Clinton, Maxine Waters, Barbara Streisand, Gloria Steinem, Marlo Thomas, Nancy Pelosi, Shirley MacLaine, Lily Tomlin, and there's a great film clip of Rosanna Rosanna Danner, <laughs> Gilda Radner, <laughs> calling her Bellow, <laughs> Bellow Abzag. Oh, never mind. <laughs> so where does Bella Abzag come from? She comes from a middle-class Orthodox Jewish family in the Bronx, and you heard that in her voice. And she claims that she became a feminist because of her experience in the Orthodox synagogue. The women and men are separated. They didn't have a voice. They couldn't get on the bima. She resented that. She goes to Columbia Law School because they don't accept women at Harvard. And she goes down to the South immediately and starts representing black activists in the civil rights movement. And the result is she gets called in front of the House on Americans Activity Committee, where she mostly has been representing people who are being accused of being communists. And now, sadly, as one interviewee, Letty Cotton Pogrebin, I don't know if you know her, well-known writer, says she's been all but forgotten. And this is a shame because she basically created the idea of the outspoken, outfront feminist. And she did something else that I think really establishes her as a pioneering feminist political activist. She embraced the gay community. That's why she kept getting elected in New York, but it's also why she got unelected <laughs> because she was so radical and so out there that she was offensive to people. Um, but as the film points out, her career doesn't really take off until she is ousted from Congress. And then she has the freedom to be a feminist and a leader. And all the images we have of her, the time we hear her voice the most, is when she was not in Congress, curiously, even though she was a great leader in Congress. Let me just say something about this film. This is an American master's film. So it's a PBS-made film. It's made by one guy named Lieberman. He did the filming, he did the writing, he did the editing, and that shows. Uh, I think it's almost never a good idea for a, a filmmaker to not have anybody else telling him what to do. And I think, uh, Larry Hatt, I remember reading that Bill Abzug's daughter was furious that she was cut out of the process of this, making this film. Well, uh, one daughter is in the film, one daughter isn't. It's interesting, I, I just thought about this this morning, that the daughters are kind of dull, or at least the one who's on, on camera. She's very straightforward. She has none of the pizzazz of her mother. 
right? Uh, but who would? I mean, <laughs> she, she's just so dominant. Uh, the fun of the film is the archives, street campaigns, news stories, family movies, uh, the the contact, the way she uh, uh, goes up against Ed Koch, who defeats her for mayor. She never she never stops running. Whatever she's doing, she's running. She's at full speed. Um, but this this uh, ability to control the room, right? To control the agenda and to never say no. You know, she doesn't take it f- from anybody. Uh, so I look, I, I look at her now, looking back at her as an inspiration. And I thought, and interestingly, she's, you know, the, her nickname was Bellicose. <laughs> <right>? <laughs> and look at the way Trump speaks and the way she speaks. Well, He's from Queens. She's from the Bronx. <laughs> There's a slightly different accent, but they both have a certain way of dominating, right? And I found it, interestingly, I had to examine, look at myself. I found it refreshing coming from her because she's a feminist and on the left, and I, and I find it annoying <laughs> coming from Trump. So really, it sort of shows you, depends on what side you're on, whether you like somebody's personality. Go ahead, Bill. Larry Hart, I would like to know whether in this film what comes through, at least in part, is this idea of speaking truth to power. Because that's my lasting impression of Bella Abzug. Abs- yes or no? Absolutely. There's a great scene, and it's in the trailer, where she's talking to George Bush Sr., who is the head of the CIA, and she's just pointing her finger at him and trying to get him to admit things that the CIA IA has done, and he's squirming under her glare. Yes, she would speak truth to power. I think she would even use would even use that phrase. Um, you know, she was an interesting person because she held at the same time uh, being a very loving mother. Uh, she was very much attached to her husband. In fact, the film makes it clear that when her husband dies suddenly in the middle of her Senate campaign, she collapses. She she really can't go on. She loses. Her, her energy, and she she lives for another s- several years, um, but she was a family person, and so there was always this contradiction of how much she could devote time to her family and how much she devoted time to her politics. One great memorable scene in in this film is when she's campaigning for mayor, and her campaign manager says he needed a break. He goes to the movies one evening. He comes out of the movies at eleven p.m. And Bella Abzug is on the street handing out literature, and she turns to him and says, how could you? How could you be disloyal? <laughs> disloyal for going to the movies at night. <laughs> An energizer bunny, although she was not a bunny by any means. I, she, I remember one Bella Abzug quote, which she said, yes, a woman's place is in the house. The house of representatives. <laughs> yes, exactly, and, that, and, that, and that's in the film. Uh, she's lovable. At the same time, as I don't think I'd want to be her friend. <laughs> well, I also think, Larry Hot, we could also add, we wouldn't want to be her enemy, and no. we weren't. No, no, we were on her side. Um, I think, I don't know if we're going to go right into the next film. If you want to take a break, and then we'll come back. We will. We'll come back. We are reviewing the films with Emmy Award-winning filmmaker from Florence, Massachusetts, Larry Hot. We're hearing about Bella and Bella. We'll continue right after this.
gentì che passeranno Oh vela ciao, vela ciao, vela ciao, ciao, ciao or Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg coming up right here on WHMP. Do you know what's happening this Friday at 9 a.m.? Is this week's Shop Friday Jackalope? Correct! They go on sale this Friday at 9 a.m. Full value gift certificates and you save 30%. Enjoy fine dining in downtown Springfield. Black Angus Flame Mignon, Crab Cake Stuffed Jumbo Shrimp, Bolognese, Bear Island Salmon, and vegans are welcome too. Get ready to save 30% beginning Friday at 9 a.m. The Shop 30 store at whmp.com. Do you know what's going on in business in Western Mass? You do if you read Business West. Find out which companies are growing, which companies are innovating. Learn about people on the move, people taking the lead. Every issue of Business West is packed with business news, including incorporations, building permits, real estate transactions, and bankruptcies. Pick up a copy or read Business West online. The vital business news is in Business West, the business journal of Western Mass. What's cooking at River Valley Co-op? Here's avid eater, grocery shopper, and co-op member Bill Newman. Sweeten up your holiday parties with gingerbread cookies, chocolate hazelnut seashells, vanilla Hanukkah cookies, and mini Dresden Stolen. It's all at the co-op. Sweet treats, the holiday roast, fresh seafood, beer and wine, and lots and lots and lots of local farm fruits and vegetables. Do a little gift shopping, too. River Valley Co-op, wild about local. Everyone is welcome. You're a nonprofit doing good work in the community. You want to let people know? That's easy. Talk to Hannah. Tell her you want to have a PSA on WHMP. If you're a community nonprofit, WHMP helps you communicate. Have an event? Need donations? Volunteers? Talk to Hannah. She'll help you craft a message and we'll run it at no cost. Hi, it's Hannah. Email me at hward at whmp.com or call me at 586-7400. WHMP News, Information, and the Arts and messages from community nonprofits. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg, WHMP. We continue our conversation with Florence-based Emmy Award-winning filmmaker Larry Hott. This is Cool Films with Larry Hott, and he is telling us about two films with kind of the same name. One is Bella, and the other is Bella, with an exclamation mark. So oh, we, we didn't ask Larry before where people can access these films, so let's hear about that. Well, the Bella with an exclamation point is an American Masters film, so it's on the PBS website, should be on PBS Passport, very easy to find, and you can watch it for free. And the film I'm about to talk about, also called Bella, without the exclamation mark, uh, is on, I'm pretty sure, on Netflix, but uh, it's one of those things, if you look it up on Google, it gives you six choices of where you can find it. Uh, and this film, Bella, without the exclamation point, is about Bella Lewitsky, who, curiously, lived uh, contemporaneously with Bella Abzug uh, on the West Coast as opposed to the East Coast. Abzug was born in 1920 and lived in 1998, and Lewitsky was born in 1916, and lived to 2004. I don't think they knew each other. They were very different circles. In fact, that's part of the point of the film because Bella, uh, the dancer, was in California where we, she was kind of shunned by the New York dance community, which is maybe why you haven't heard of her. You've heard of Martha Graham and Twyla Tharp, but 
Bella didn't get the recognition on the East Coast, and she was perfectly happy with that way because she had freedom on the West Coast. But why do we care about Bella Lewitsky? Well, first of all, there's a curiously curious overlap with Bella Lewitsky and Bella Abzug. They both were at the House Un-American Activities Committee. Bella Abzug mostly as a lawyer representing people who have been accused of being communists, and Bella Lewitsky herself being there accused of being a communist, and in fact, she ended up being blacklisted. And that's more, one of the more poignant scenes in this film. She's already a well-known and respected dancer, and she cannot get work. And how did a dancer survive in Hollywood at the time? I never really thought about this, but it's very obvious. All those films of the 30s and 40s with the big dance numbers, well, who's dancing in them? Right. <laughs> the professional dancers in the community who are otherwise, they're doing ballet, they're doing modern dance, they're not making much of a living. They work for Hollywood, the, the local industry, and Bella Lewitsky was a choreographer and dancer. Uh, she appeared in a film called White Savage, uh, she, which she later apologized for. Mm. Then she gets blacklisted, and Agnes DeMille, who actually lived in the valley here for a while, Agnes DeMille hires her to be the choreographer for the movie version of Oklahoma which, if you remember, has some of the weirdest dream dance sequences <laughs> that Hollywood ever produced. And Bella Lewitsky does not get credit, Ooh. right? It's like Dalton Trumbo, writing for Hollywood, but you can't be credited. Uh, if we have a clip lined up, you can get a sense, I want to just say before we hear the clip, that this is an extremely beautiful film because there's footage going back into the 20s and 30s black and white, old, kind of grainy footage of this beautiful, lithe woman who uh, moves like a snake, a serpentine moves. And you, the creativity is going to come so off her like an aura. Let's, let's hear the clip. Bella Lewitsky was a remarkable dancer. Bella was iconic, a legend. To me, she was like a goddess. I mean, my God, Bella could balance on a dime. She was always intensely, incomparably magnificent. I am what is called a modern dancer, a term which describes exactly nothing. It, it only tells you that it is not ballet. Bella's important because she created a company here in Los Angeles where there is no dance. In the, in the clip, she's dancing in this uh, very typical California landscape. It's not doesn't look like anything you see on the East Coast. And she is balancing on a dime. Yeah, she, yeah, she is phenomenal looking well into her, her old age. Uh, I remember Bella Lewitsky from the battles over the National Endowment for the Arts. And she wouldn't sign the anti-obscenity clause that was, was promoted by Senator Jesse Helms. She lost her funding and her studio almost closed and the dancers were out of work. And eventually she sued the NEA and won. So a lot of the arts we have in the United States today, you could thank Bella Lewitsky for saving. Uh, I highly recommend this, this film. In fact, the two films together are great. The two Bellas, Bella with an exclamation point and Bella Lewitsky, the, the dancer, contemporaneous, East Coast, West Coast, political, artistic, brassy, <laughs> intelligent feminists. Uh, and they changed the face of America.
And are they going to be considered for uh, awards? I certainly year, am. Larry? Yes, I, I saw both of these films as part of the Oscar nomination process. And, oh, I guess you can't tell us, but you're recommending we see it and we can infer what we want from that? Well, I'm telling you, I've already seen 20, 25 fantastic films, and this, these are among them. So well, they will, I will be considering them. They're, they're, they're in my top list. Certainly on our list. Bill, uh, we are out of time, unfortunately. So thank you so much, Larry Hot. Once again, thank you, listeners, for joining us. This is Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg on WHMP. Whatever the season, something fun is happening at the Hitchcock Center for the Environment. From home energy efficiency workshops to birding classes and nature walks, we have hands-on activities happening all year long. Whether you're 2 or 92, the Hitchcock Center has an opportunity for you to connect with our natural world. Come visit us at our new location, the Hitchcock Center, 845 West Street in Amherst. For more information, visit hitchcockcenter.org. Want to know more about local history, literature, and education? Hilltown Families' bi-monthly Learning Ahead Cultural Itineraries offer an easy way to delve into Western Mass culture and traditions. These new seasonal itineraries are produced in collaboration with a humanities scholar and community education expert, offering ways for self-directed teens and lifelong learners to engage in learning that helps shape a sense of place. Funded by a year-long grant from Mass Humanities, you can download guides anytime, free of charge, at Hilltown Families. 22 News Storm Team on 101.5 WHMP. This is Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg on WHMP. Welcome to Talk the Talk. I am Buzz. Welcome to Talk. Welcome. And I'm Bill Newman. And I'm Buzz Eisenberg. We had a little microphone problem right there for a second. I am just so grateful we have independent uh, investigative reporter Dusty Christensen for, I think, the third month in a row uh, coming on and talking about uh, his extraordinary reportage of um, local, really, stuff of major import. He's, you've been immersed in police lately. It Dusty. has become a beat of mine, I suppose. It never really was when I was at the Gazette, uh, but it seems to have become a big part of my beat, so I'm super glad to be on the chat about it. Well, uh, I can't help but think in, in the context of... Uh, uh, police uh, chief uh, Jody Casper's uh, tenure coming to an end when she's moving to Nantucket to lead the police department there. And uh, meanwhile, I just saw a shoestring article written by you. Uh, shoestring, for those who don't know and should know, the extraordinary uh, uh, local, uh, uh, I guess, newspaper? Ind uh, independent online news outlet. Um, uh, uh, it's it's been a home for me for about the last year for a lot of my investigative reporting and uh, investigative reporting indeed. It appears in the shooting. I just saw this uh, a couple days ago. You wrote an article um, that reported on Jenison Retzlaff and the settlement. Uh, could you tell us about it? Yeah, sure. So uh, this is a story that, uh, very surprisingly, I've seen no other news outlets pick up. We were the first ones at the shoestring to report that. Um, that uh, earlier uh, in, in 2022, uh, this Amherst resident, Jenison Retzlaff, had sued the Northampton Police Department over, over their arrest of him in 2019. He said that he was in the Meadows section of Northampton when somebody called the police on him saying he looked, uh, quote, out of it. Um, 
He said the fire department and EMTs first arrived on the scene and determined that he didn't need medical assistance. But after he left, the police department showed up. And in his lawsuit he filed against the city and uh, five of its officers, he alleged that uh, when he tried to stand up and get his ID back from the police so that he could leave, officers tackled him to the ground, kicked him, beat him with a baton, pepper sprayed, and arrested him. So he ended up filing a lawsuit in uh, 2022. And and just on September 9th, the city, uh, through its insurance company, which handles lawsuits like this, agreed to settle that case rather than to proceed to a jury trial. Um, uh, credit to the city, because the insurance company handles these claims, it, they're not as open to scrutiny under the public records law. But the mayor's office did, when we asked, share the amount of the settlement that the insurance company had agreed to. And it was $75,000. That's a pretty high amount uh, to settle on for a case like this. And although that money does not come directly out of the, the city's coffers because it comes through their insurance policy, uh, it could very well mean higher insurance premiums for the city going forward. I don't know. We all have our, our, our notions of what values should uh, attach to these kinds of incidents, but the police show up. He wants to get his ID. He's already been declared uh, declared by the medical people to not need medical assistance, and then uh, they tackle him, they kick him, you say, they beat him with a baton, they pepper spray him, and they arrest him all wrongfully. I don't know, 75000 doesn't seem like an enormous amount of money to me. Uh, you know, I, 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 uh, it's always interesting to me to see what kind of settlements emerge out of these things. Um, uh, I remember when I was covering Holyoke uh, a, a number of years ago, there was a 14-year-old boy who got beaten up by police officers there, filed a civil rights lawsuit similar to this, and um, ultimately agreed to a payout that was far less than $75,000, despite the sort of more shocking details in, in that case. Um, so uh, the uh, ultimately, the, the payout is going to be $75,000 for this one. Um, and, you know, I, I spoke with a number of people about this incident, including uh, city councilor Rachel Maori. Uh, I, I had initially reached out to her because she chairs the finance committee and the city council and was sort of curious about how much of this information actually comes before the city council. Uh, mostly they just deal with uh, approving the, the premium payments for, uh, you know, insurance. And these types of payments these settlements because uh, the city is not self-insured, the city does not uh, directly deal with these lawsuits itself, they don't come before the city council. So she was surprised to learn this and said that uh, in her mind, you know, that the the city's creation of the Division of Community Care, which as you all know, is a civilian responder agency the city created in 2021 to remove some of these types of calls like wellness checks from the police department. Uh, she's saying that the, the creation of the Division of Community Care uh, is... is uh, the importance of it is further highlighted by this case because it would have been those responders and not police officers that would have showed up to a wellness check like this uh, had that depart that division been up and fully running back in 2019 when this happened. Bill, I'd like to bring you into this conversation with Dusty Christensen, our uh, the independent investigative reporter. Uh, Dusty has been covering, and I want to hear more about Eric Matlock's case. Mm -hmm. That is a suit against the Northampton Police, uh, Marisol. Triush's claim that uh, th that she was beaten while uh, at midnight on King Street. I want to talk about all that in the context of Jody Casper's departure from Northampton Police Department as chief. Um, I, I read a Gazette article. I've, the, the accolades have been uh, redundant about Jody Casper. And you, Bill, have talked about while uh, she's done a good job, but you have had differences with her. I, I'd like to know 
all this stuff was under his her watch. Um, what say you about that? Well, I have a lot to say about that, but I'd actually like to go back and uh, set this uh, discussion up with this question for Dusty Christensen. Did the police have any statement or explanation with regard to the settlement? What were they doing? Why were they beating this guy up? What were they doing there at all? What was their position? It's a great question. You know, as I always, I always love talking about legal stuff with two lawyers because I, I feel like I'm explaining the the obvious to you all. But obviously, for the for the those who are listening out here, you know, they did file a response to the lawsuit where you know they denied most of the claims that they had violated this person's civil rights. And I think, if I'm remembering correctly, their contention was that uh, you know there was a bit of of a physical altercation there when when the man got up to leave that he slapped away a police officer's hand. Um, but obviously. Uh, the, the city's insurer has agreed to settle this case rather than let a jury decide whether that behavior uh, was justified or not. Um, the police chief wouldn't talk to me about this case. Uh, none of the officers involved would, would respond when I initially reached out to them about uh, what they were doing out there in the first place. So uh, we didn't really get some answers from the police department. In, in on your that. article, you say that Mayor Jean Louise Shara declined to comment, but. Uh, city attorney uh, Alan Seawall did, in fact, speak with you. Is that right? Uh, he he tracked down uh, both the settlement agreement for me as well as the settlement amount. Since you know, since he was not the one, uh, you know, uh, defending the city in this case, it was the insurance company's uh, legal team. Um, he had to go get that information. And I know that other municipalities have used this setup that the insurance company deals with settlements like this to withhold that kind of information. So, uh, you know, credit to, to Alan for, and to the mayor's office for tracking that down and putting it out to the public. Bill. Okay, let's hear about the other settlement, Dusty. So this is, uh, I think this is all important to note because the city is currently facing two other, uh, uh, two other incidents involving the the beating of of people within the city by the police department. One of those is a lawsuit that is uh, now uh, moving forward. Um, uh, that is uh, that lawsuit brought by Eric Matlock, who police pepper sprayed and arrested in 2017 on the steps of City Hall. Uh, he was holding a one-man protest on the, the steps, and uh, police had alleged that he was uh, blocking entrance and exit. And uh, so eventually they uh, arrested him and uh, pepper sprayed him, uh, You know, charged him with all sorts of things like disorderly conduct and assault on a police officer. But in 2018, th- those charges went before a jury, and they acquitted Matlock on all of those charges. So he sued the city in 2020 and five of its police officers alleging that they assaulted him, violated his civil rights. And, uh, you know, just recently, a, a judge in Hampshire Superior Court uh, earlier this year, just in, in September, ruled that that lawsuit could move forward. There's a really, there's a sort of bar that uh, these lawsuits have to clear uh, called summary judgment where the case can be dismissed out of hand. And this lawsuit survived that first big test. And so now it's it's moving its way towards a possible jury trial. It could be that the city settles that case as well. And that would... Uh, if, if the city did settle that case, that would be yet another payout that the city would make uh, because of the conduct of its police department. Yeah, let me make one uh, mention in, in, in uh, support of the actions of the mayor's office in making sure and, and the city solicitor, Alan Sewell, making sure that this 
the information regarding the settlement uh, was in fact made public. I, I brought a case on behalf of the ACLU uh, against the town of South Hadley, which on the basis that this was not our settlement, not up to us, and what happens with an insurance company is not a public record, that's what the town said. I brought a suit against South Hadley to reveal this settlement regarding uh, uh, the Phoebe, Phoebe Prince uh, terrible, terrible situation in South Hadley with bullying and a uh, death of this young woman. This, uh, but the this town would not release the amount of the settlement, and we had to sue in Hampshire Superior Court to have that information released. So, congratulations to the city for doing the right, city of Northampton in this instance for doing the right thing. That's right. I think transparency is so key in these instances. And, you know, I'm always very pessimistic about uh, officials being transparent with reporters. And, um, yeah, in this case, they very quickly got us that information. They could have made us file a public records request, made us wait for two weeks to get that information. They got it uh, the very same day that we asked. And what about the Marisol Driush case? So that's the other one, right. That's the other one. It's not a lawsuit yet, though it is likely to move in that direction, I suppose. Let's just be clear, when uh, these sorts of situations, you have to file a presentment of claim before you file suit, and that presentment has been filed by Attorney Goldblatt, her attorney. That's right. That's right. So for for folks who uh, who maybe don't remember, Marisol Drioch was uh, is a a woman from uh, Holyoke who earlier this year was delivering food uh, th through the delivery app DoorDash uh, on King Street. Had just left McDonald's, I believe, when she was pulled over by a Northampton police officer for a busted headlight. And within five minutes, that officer had yanked her out of the vehicle, was wrestling her to the ground. Uh, soon after, another officer arrived, pepper sprayed her. And um, we at The Shoestring were the first to publish the video of that incident, which led to a big protest in front of City Hall. Uh, a whole bunch of people were really upset about this arrest and and uh, the way it was is done on a 60-year-old woman whose first language is not English, uh, does not speak English uh, well, and and was being yelled at by these police officers uh, exclusively in English during this entire interaction. Um, so those charges that against her, they allege that she assaulted a police officer, that, she, uh, you know, all sorts of things are sort of a trifecta of charges that tend to get brought against people in cases like this. And uh, the DA's office took one look at it and threw those charges out immediately. She agreed that she had a busted headlight and I think paid a nominal fine for the busted headlight. Uh, but soon after, it, she uh, is now uh, being represented by local attorney Dana Goldblatt, uh, who is also representing Eric Matlock, I should note. And she has filed a presentment letter to City Hall seeking damages on behalf of Marty Soldrio, which um, if the city... It, it doesn't respond to that. It's likely that a lawsuit will also result from that one. And uh, that could also mean a significant payout on behalf of the city. That is what will happen in the future is obviously somewhat speculation. But I would like to ask you, Dusty Christensen, what the common uh, what the commonalities here are of these three cases. And in particular, I'd like your perspective as to whether or not whatever the merits of the legal claims, whether there is proof here that the Northampton Police Department are failing to engage, significantly failing to engage in de-escalation. It certainly seems that way in the Retzlaff case, in the Dreyuch case. Um, 
<laughs> the, in the in the arrest of Marisol Dreuch, the city hired an outside uh, firm to investigate it. Um, it's uh, sort of questionable how independent that firm truly is. It's it's run by former prosecutors and police uh, officials. But um, but that firm found that the interaction with uh, Marisol, where they dragged her out of the car, was quote courteous. Um, but. Every single person I've talked to in Northampton and beyond who has viewed that that footage has felt otherwise, and everyone I've spoken to, without an exception, across the political spectrum, has found has has been shocked by the escalation of that incident that the police made. I haven't seen the video of the Retzlaff arrest, but the allegations contained in the lawsuit seem to suggest similar patterns, uh, sort of what you're referencing, Bill, that there was a complete lack of de-escalation. Uh, you know, we talked about earlier that the city now has its division of community care, which and sh- is supposed to be responding to a lot of calls that pre- police were previously taking on, you know, wellness checks, mental health calls, noise complaints, stuff like this. Certainly in the Retzlaff and, and probably also in the, in the Matlock case, it would have been uh, the division of community care, unarmed civilian responders who were responding in those cases and folks who are trained and steeped in de-escalation and, and uh, you know, working with people as peers. Uh, you know, I should note that, I, that there was a policing review commission uh, that was put together in Northampton in 2020 after the nationwide Black Lives Matter protest that year. And they have called for a number of things, including the creation of the division of community care and also uh, for for police uh, for sort of traffic stops like the one Marisol Dreuch faced to be scaled back or eliminated, you know, they could have simply sent a ticket to Marisol Dreuch in the mail for a busted headlight instead of pulling her over and putting her in a situation where soon she was being thrown to the pavement and, and pepper sprayed with a, with a chemical agent. Because she, she committed the crime of not understanding English. That's right. Yeah. I, I want to go back, uh, Dusty Christensen, to Jody Casper. So uh, all these things we've just been looking at happened under her watch uh, as police chief in Northampton. Now, we all know that it doesn't matter how skilled you are as a supervisor, things are going to happen under your watch, right? right? But um, I am struck as a non-Northampton person um, by the extent of the accolades. Um, And um, these things are not sort of part of her resume in, you know, reading the Gazette. Uh, I don't see these things as being mentioned that often as as part of her legacy. What do you think? Yeah, I think as journalists, it's our job to hold people to hold people accountable to you know to not write hagiography and create sort of icons out of powerful figures, but rather to tell the truth and all the good, the bad, and the ugly. So. I've seen a lot of news outlets, the Gazette being one of them, simply reflect on the accolades that Chief Casper has received over the years, and she has received many, and I know there are people in town that are are big supporters of her, but unmentioned in all of that police coverage are these kinds of lawsuits that have uh, in recent years piled up on uh, the police department and are going to end up costing the city quite a bit of money, not to mention, you know, the the impact on the people who were arrested. Um, and that's not all. I mean, you know, a, a lieutenant in the department sued Casper uh, and others alleging the creation of a hostile work environment. Uh, you know, as that court case proceeded, uh, you know, uh, it's been described as turmoil within the department. It seems that there is a lot of internal strife within the department itself as well under 
Chief Casper's watch. Um, and of course, uh, you know, uh, to sort of connect us to the international picture, there was a big controversy uh, a number of years ago over uh, Chief Casper's a desire to get Northampton police officers training with the Israeli Defense Forces in in Israel with a with a with a military uh, I, that trip, if I remember correctly, didn't end up happening um, uh, after there was a significant amount of of, uh, of uproar in the community over it. But these are kind of things that should also be included in that kind of news coverage, together with all those accolades. We're speaking with Dusty Christensen. We're going to take a break. When we come back, I just want to spend a couple of minutes talking about Mayor Josh Garcia and his response in Holyoke to that terrible shooting there. We'll be right back, right after this. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg. You've been miserable with joint pain for so long. You want and deserve relief, but you just keep putting off that call to QC Kinetics. Okay, now's the time. Listen up. QC Kinetics is rolling out something huge for the first time ever. It's a voucher for $500 off your first joint pain treatment. That's right, $500 off. Whether it's your knees, hips, shoulder, or back, the QC Kinetics voucher applies to any area. But this is a limited time offer, so no more putting off that call. QC Kinetics is the largest regenerative clinic in the country with tens of thousands of satisfied patients who are able to get lasting relief with no surgery, no drugs, and no downtime. So reach out to the team at QC Kinetics today and ask them, how can I get a $500 off voucher? They'll walk you through the steps and get you started on your way to relief. Don't wait. This is a limited time offer. Call for your free consultation today. QC Kinetics, 413-992-5450. That's 413-992-5450. 413-992-5450. Limited time only. Not valid with any other offer. Rush doctors, short appointments. Is anyone listening? I'm Dr. Kate Atkinson, and I'm excited to announce that Atkinson Family Practice is now offering concierge medicine in addition to our main practice. An annual fee gets you access to an experienced, board-certified doctor who has fewer patients so they can devote more time to you. Atkinson Concierge Medicine. If your health concerns need more time, coordination, and advocacy, concierge might be right for you. Visit atkinsonfamilypractice.com slash concierge. What's cooking at River Valley Co-op? Here's avid eater, grocery shopper, and co-op member Bill Newman. Sweeten up your holiday parties with gingerbread cookies, chocolate hazelnut seashells, vanilla Hanukkah cookies, and mini Dresden Stolen. It's all at the co-op. Sweet treats, the holiday roast, fresh seafood, beer and wine, and lots and lots and lots of local farm fruits and vegetables. Do a little gift shopping, too. River Valley Co-op, wild about local. Everyone is welcome. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg, WHMP. And we are back with independent investigative reporter Dusty Christensen, who's been spending a whole lot of time these last few months with all that's happening in our local police. And we can't ignore uh, what's going on in Holyoke. I know you've worked on, you've spent a lot of time looking at the Holyoke Police Department. And uh, recently, Mayor Josh Garcia has um, had this horrific shooting that he's had to attend to, and his plan to address that is what? 
is it's it's referred to as Ezekiel's plan, um, and in part it was is asking the city council for a million dollars to hire thirteen additional police officers and to blanket the city with surveillance cameras. Uh, the shooting that you're referring to, of course, was a stray bullet. There was a shooting that happened downtown, and um, a stray bullet struck a woman on a bus and ultimately killed. Uh, the baby that she was ready to deliver uh, inside of her, uh, the newborn's name, I believe, was Ezekiel, hence the name of this plan, Ezekiel's plan. And since then, uh, the police have been out in force in uh, in Holyoke, particularly downtown and in the sort of uh, what's called the lower wards of, of uh, Holyoke, largely Puerto Rican neighborhoods, um, making a lot of arrests. And the mayor has said that's going to continue. They're continue to crack down. He said that when he was on the campaign trails at two years ago um he heard a lot from people talking about uh you know how they wanted to see more police in their community and that this is him responding to that but there have been a whole host of other people who have really been concerned by this crackdown in the wake of this shooting um there's plenty of people who've noted that it's not taking away the conditions that create that kind of violence but merely making a show of dealing with it in some way. Um, there was a, a phenomenal article, uh, a piece of commentary written by Patrick O'Connor at Holyoke uh, residence, uh, and I believe an educator, uh, that ran in the Republican uh, just uh, three days ago that delved into some of these figures behind this crackdown. Um, and uh, they're pretty shocking. Uh, police spent, uh, according to police logs that he reviewed, they spent almost all their time stopping cars in historically poorer neighborhoods. Between November 13th and 20th, they pulled over 44 drivers, and only six of those happened outside of downtown. Um, and, uh, you know, a, a lot of those were on drug-related charges, but most of them were for simple possession, not distribution or anything of the sort. Um, uh, the, the city council has, for the moment, put the brakes on this plan to hire 13 more police officers at a cost of a million dollars. There has been a lot of discussion in Holyoke in recent years about police spending, and so I'm sure that will be a big part of that discussion going forward. But um, the city council is changing over in Holyoke, and there are a number of more conservative uh, councilors who are coming back onto the council after having been elected. Uh, uh, Having the voters having kicked him off the council two years ago, or, or having, or they maybe didn't run for re-election, uh, those folks are now coming back on the council, and so it may be a council that's more receptive to this response going forward in the um, in the future. Bill, when we had uh, Mayor Josh Garcia on, we asked him specifically about uh, addressing it by a greater police presence versus looking at the underlying causes of violence, uh, poverty, and the like. Um, uh, remember that, Bill. I do. I'd just like to note that Patrick O'Connor's piece in The Republican, now available on Mass Lot, is really very much worth your time to read. And as Dusty Christensen points out, one, one, of, the, one of the facts noted in that opinion piece is that of all of these arrests made in Holyoke since this tragic shooting, one, one has been for an arguably serious crime, alleged crime of uh, distribution of drugs. One, everything else is for the most low-level traffic stops and for possession of drugs. Nothing of a very serious nature, but an enormous police presence. So uh, it's it's a really well well-written piece and very much worth your time and consideration. You're here. Well, Dusty Christensen, we are just so grateful uh, every time you come in. Uh, I just feel like a student just learning so much about 
about the region that we live in. I'm trying to think of a good name, Bill. You're always great with these pithy names. Should it be As the Dust Settles or Dust in Time or uh, what? Uh, you got to <laughs> pick a, a really good thing for these segments. I so. like As the Dust Settles. Uh, you know, although as a reporter, it feels like it never quite settles. <laughs> Bill, you're an expert we'll, on pithy. We'll work on it. All right. This is... I, I agree with pulling back the curtain and letting people see what we do, but not this much. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you, Dusty. So Thanks much. for having me on. It's been great. Uh, on a far more, well, not far more serious, on another serious note, we are going to be talking to uh, Dr. Norbert Goldfield about the Israel-Gaza nightmare that we see unfold every evening in our living room and about his attempts to heal across the divides. We'll be right back with Dr. Goldfield right after this. This is Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg. For WHMP News, I'm Jess Tyler. The decision on whether to approve a nearly $10 million borrowing authorization increase for renovations to the Jones Library in Amherst is being delayed. Town councilors say they want to see a revised agreement with library trustees that ensures taxpayers won't have to foot the bill. Councilors met Monday night and listened to more than an hour of public comment before deciding to postpone the vote until December 18th. Town Manager Paul Bockelman told councilors the project can't go out to bid in early January without the revised borrowing authorization, which needs support from at least nine councilors. The son of the late Yankee Candle founder Michael Kittredge wants to turn his estate into a several-hundred-unit housing development, according to the Gazette. The Kittredge estate spans hundreds of acres and includes a water park, tennis courts, collector car garages, a golf course, and multiple houses. The proposed development would connect to the Amherst water and sewer system and require major renovations to the surrounding roads and infrastructure. Joshua Wallach, the Kittredge family's development manager, is expected to provide an overview at the planning board meeting on December 13th at 7 p.m. at Town Hall. Smith Vocational High School is launching a campaign to raise $750,000 needed to rebuild the horticulture building. The school has secured nearly $6 million through insurance settlements and grants. The previous building, which housed the school's forestry education program, burned down in May 2022 after a rotting mower's exhaust came into contact with combustible materials. A bit of sunning clouds this morning, and that's going to be the trend all week, but cooler temperatures are on the horizon. High temperatures today in the high 30s and low 40s. As we head into the overnight, those temperatures dip down into the 20s, mainly the mid to high 20s for our low temperatures, and conditions are going to stay similar in the overnight, some partial cloud cover. I'm Jack Wood with the 22 News Storm Team on 101.5 WHMP. Tag, you're it. Tom Hartman, weekdays at noon. Tom Hartman Program, your home for the resistance, commentary, conversation, and common cause. Join me, Tom Hartman, every weekday from noon to 3, right here on WHMP. 101.5 and 1400 WHMP. Of all the boys, they're hot. Of all the boys, boys. So hot. They're the Hot Sardines, one of New York City's hottest jazz bands, and they are coming to town. About Memphis to shame, please let me explain. About Memphis to shame means that you're grand. The Hot Sardines Holiday Stomp, Thursday, December 7th at UMass. Swing into the season with the romping, rollicking sounds of the Hot Sardines. Oh, by gosh, by jingle. 
It's time for carols and Kris Kringles. The Hot Sardines lighthearted and lively mix of hot jazz, swing, and stride is irresistible. Get tickets now at the UMass Fine Arts Center website. The Hot Sardines Holiday Stomp, a very merry night at UMass, Thursday, December 7th in Bowker Auditorium. Pie is like duct tape, it fixes everything. We must have pie, the great playwright David Mamet said. Stress cannot exist in the presence of a pie. So you go to Paul and Elizabeth's, you order a slice of pie, or you call and order a whole pie. I'll pick it up Saturday. They make cream pies at Paul and Elizabeth's and fruit pies. Whatever's in season, peach pie in deep summer, apple in fall. Pie fixes everything. Therefore, Paul and Elizabeth's restaurant is a repair shop inside Thorns in downtown Northampton. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg, WHMP. We welcome back to our show Dr. Norbert Goldfield, Northampton resident, CEO of the bipartisan Ask Nurses and Doctors, founder and executive director of Healing Across the Divides. I so much, we so much want to hear your perspective as the executive director, as the founder of Healing Across the Divides, having done work in the Middle East, in particular with Israel and the Palestinian territories for over 20 years. What's your perspective on what is happening today? And then we want to get to the question of what's this, what, what in God's name is going to bring a resolution to the horrors that are going on in Gaza? We'd appreciate your perspective and maybe spend a minute telling our listeners who don't know what Healing Across the Divides is. Thanks and uh, appreciate the opportunity to being on again to uh, to both of you and to all of you. Um, I founded Healing Across the Divides uh, in 2004, almost 20 years ago. I've been engaged in the area since 1980 um, and I've lived in uh, Northampton since 1982. The mission of the organization is to measurably improve the health of marginalized Israelis and Palestinians through community-based interventions, which is to say we don't do any work on the ground ourselves. We have a representative in both areas. We provide grants to community groups with the hope that those groups will improve their effectiveness. The leaders will be tomorrow's leaders, but in the meantime, we've measurably improved the health of these community-based interventions for over a quarter of a million people. Okay, you've done a lot of work in Israel, you've done a lot of work in the West Bank, and you're very knowledgeable about Gaza. To my question, help, help, how we, how does this get resolved? When does the killing end? I have no answer to that. The reality is, just so it's clear, that uh, we're in a completely new era after October 7th. Uh, this is the worst event, as far as I'm concerned. Uh, that's occurred uh, in 75 years since the time when Israel was founded. Uh, what it'll result in is more extremists on both sides. Uh, and uh, the reality is, just just looking at yesterday's newspaper, there was an article in Haaretz that said pretty clearly that the push that's going on right now uh, with the massacres that are going on right now, the killings that are going on right now, um, are really in many ways serving uh, Prime Minister Netanyahu of Israel's political needs. Uh, yesterday there was a meeting of uh, hostage families, so there's a lot of hostages, a lot of Israeli hostages that are totally inappropriately 
in uh, unfathomably still being kept uh, by Hamas. They met yesterday with Netanyahu and his uh, war cabinet. Many of them walked out because they said, you know, you're not really serious about rescuing our families anymore. You're just here for these political issues and you're really just pursuing the war. So I don't have an, uh, an answer at this point, period. I would appreciate your perspective on one other aspect, and that is that Israel says, Netanyahu says, not Israel, Netanyahu says that his objective is to eradicate Hamas. It seems to many people, I'm one of them, that even if Netanyahu and the Israeli Defense Force could eradicate a lot of the Hamas leadership, that not all the Hamas leadership is in Gaza. And additionally, even if much of that leadership is killed, there'll be others to take their place and they'll be angrier and more justifiably angry than ever before. It will take some years, but Hamas can't be eradicated. It is more an idea than people. What's your response to that? Well, very simply, uh, number one, you're correct, but just to give the details, the political leadership of Hamas is in Qatar. The political leadership of Hamas is in Syria. Uh, so even if we eliminate all the leadership in Gaza and kill all the 30,000 uh, people, uh, men and men who are uh, uh, fighting for Hamas right now, if you kill them all, so far they've estimated, and it's obviously just an estimate, that they've killed 5,000 so far. Um, the reality is you're not gonna kill an idea. You know, and my point is that you're going to have more extremists, uh, rejectionists who do not accept Israel's right to exist uh, among Palestinians. And conversely, you will have more people, uh, and some of those people are in the Netanyahu government, who don't accept the idea that Palestinians have a right to their own country. So uh, that's the situation. And so since at the end of the day, uh, healing across the divides doesn't uh, uh, impact that. We can't impact that. I really do believe that. What we do is work on the ground uh, and we work these amazing community groups. And this past Sunday, we had a really heartrending web webinar where two of the community groups spoke about their efforts. And I would encourage just people to hear some of the words that they use of saying, look, you know, this is what we can do and this is what we're doing and we're on the ground. And they showed uh, really disturbing, not of body parts, but disturbing pictures of uh, bombs going off and so on and so forth. And, and I, would, I watched uh, that uh, webinar. And uh, if you could tell people how to access that webinar, it is worth watching. How, Norbert, can it's, they see this? It's at the website, healingdivideswithans.org, www.healingdivides.org. And I want to I, I want to continue talking about what healing across the divides uh, is all about. But I I, I got to ask the question, Doctor, uh, about whether or not it really is political motivation for Netanyahu. There was a trial that began alleging that he committed uh, acts of bribery and fraud and general breach of trust of his position as prime minister. Uh, that trial started five years ago. It, the prosecution listed over 300 witnesses. It's still going on right now. And many say that the, the reason why he wants to keep this war going is so that he can avoid uh, being fully prosecuted and, uh, and to save his skin. What's your view of that? 
in broad strokes, it's accurate. The, the reality is, uh, tragically, uh, just to put it in the home front, there's really no difference between Netanyahu and Trump on that score, is that the best way for them, both of them, to stay out of jail uh, is uh, to get back and back into or stay in power. And But that's been reported on extensively. Uh, so uh, Gans, who's the... Uh, who's the, one of the opposition leaders, voted against the budget this morning. Uh, and, uh, and so we're, we're back to the fractious and non-unified uh, uh, cabinet that's, uh, that's there today. And he's made it very clear. People have made it very clear as to what the motivations are. So explain this. I don't mean to be in need of a remedial lesson, but I guess I am. What is Netanyahu's endgame here? What does he say? I've won. It's over. I would guess, uh, hearing what he speaks, is that he, if he is able uh, to uh, to kill the entire leadership of Hamas that's in Gaza, he would say, this is what I set out to do, and I've won. Uh, clearly, as we've already discussed, this is not true, which is to say the Hamas will not be eliminated. Uh, but that's, I believe, is what his argument will be but what is but what happens with gaza it is looks like a moonscape the bombing has just destroyed a phenomenal percentage of the housing their people didn't have places to live before they didn't have jobs the unemployment rate is extraordinary what happens to gaza so i don't have i don't have an answer uh except to say that i'm not an optimist uh, but as Charles Sykes said today in his uh, his daily uh, missive, he said, uh, but I do have hope, which is to say by working together, we can make a difference. And that's what we're doing through Healing Crosses Divides. We're trying to ask ourselves exactly what we can do to make a difference. Right now, for example, uh, we're trying to look at expanded funding for a joint uh, Jewish-Arab uh, uh, prenatal and postnatal mothers program that's uh, that's occurring uh, wonderfully uh, in Israel, and it's still going on. Uh, we've already gotten matching funds with another organization uh, to help to work with some of the suffering that's going on with the Bedouin in the Negev. The Bedouin in the Negev not only have suffered, not only some of them have been taken hostage, but they're totally exposed because many of the Bedouin live in unrecognized villages with no safety whatsoever. Dr. Norbert Goldfield, you do a lot of work. Healing Across the Divides does a lot of work on the West Bank. What is the situation there? How has it been impacted by the uh, overt uh, militarism and military uh, 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 actions that are going on in Gaza? Well, to put it simply, uh, the uh, at the webinar and on our Facebook page, you'll hear from our Palestinian representative who lives in Ramallah, and one of the uh, on the webinar, you'd hear from uh, one of the grantees, uh, where there's several hundred Palestinians who've been killed. Uh, the United States has put re visa restrictions on a number of settlers, which will amount to nothing. But just to give you an idea, settlers, uh, Jewish settlers who have attacked Palestinians and killed Palestinians. Uh, and just so people know, getting closer to home, both our Palestinian representative uh, and the person, for, uh, the grantee uh, uh, leader who spoke uh, about the work that she's doing and uh, improving nutrition and exercise on Palestinian school children in refugee camps. She's related to one of the three people uh, that was shot in Burlington, uh, uh, Vermont. 
those are three Palestinians uh, who were shot. Uh, one of them is paralyzed. The one who was paralyzed is a relative of an, uh, of uh, the leader of the uh, of the grantee who spoke. Uh, and and as our Palestinian representatives uh, uh, spoke uh, also on the webinar, she she says how all she knew all three boys, and these are three boys who were tragically shot, uh, literally just in our backyard. Yeah, it's, it's we are. I'm sorry, Bill. Go ahead. Now, I was going to remind our listeners that we are speaking with Dr. Norbert Goldfield. Uh, he is the founder and executive director of Healing Across the Divides. And we're going to continue our conversation with Dr. Goldfield right after this. More Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg coming up right here on WHMP. Franklin County has a vibrant history of farming. At the Franklin County House of Correction, we bring that history to life with education and vocational programs around farming and gardening. Incarcerated men and women learn to work an active organic garden. Best of all, they harvest, they send home to help support and feed their families. This is Sheriff Chris Donnellan, and I can't think of better therapy than farming and feeding your family. That's the history of Franklin County, and we honor it at the Sheriff's Office every day. You want to feel important. You want to be part of something bigger, something that matters and can help change things. You want to feel like you belong. We know. We felt that way, too. And that's why we did something about it. We aren't just Army National Guard soldiers. We are normal people just like you. But our part-time service in the Army National Guard means we get to be more. When our communities are in need, we get the chance to stand up and do something about it. We get to serve in our own region and help the people we call neighbors. From the coasts of Maine, Massachusetts, Rhode Island, and New Jersey. The small communities of Connecticut, Delaware, Maryland, and Pennsylvania. To the dense forest of New Hampshire, Vermont, and New York, and historic Washington, D.C. We are here for our hometowns. And together, we can make a difference. Take on your legacy. Visit NationalGuard.com to find out more. Sponsored by the Massachusetts Army National Guard. Aired by the Massachusetts Broadcasters Association at this station. The Paul Parent Garden Club, every Sunday, 6 to 8 a.m. Brought to you by Winesick Nursery, locally owned and operated since 1954. Visit Mike, Amity, John, and the rest of the team at Winesick Nursery. Route 9 in Hadley and online at WinesickNursery.com. A little bit of hammering and a little bit of humoring. Today's Homeowner with Danny Lipford. Home improvement ideas and advice. Today's Homeowner with Danny Lipford. Sundays at noon, 1015-1400-WHMP. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg. WHMP. We continue our conversation with Dr. Norbert Goldfield, who is the founder and executive director of Healing Across the Divides. We were talking while we were off air about how the conflict between Israel and the uh, and Hamas, I didn't want to extend it beyond that, but between Israel and Hamas has led to and engendered and heated up an enormous amount of anti-Semitism and Islamophobia here in the United States and in Europe. But I'd like to focus on the United States for the time being. An enormous fight going on on our college campuses about freedom of speech and Islamophobia and anti-Semitism. And I would appreciate your perspective on that, Dr. Goldfield. I think they're all uh, absolutely uh, 
uh, truth, that is to say, the, the rise in anti-Semitism and the rise in Islamophobia, uh, as you framed it, is uh, absolutely there and absolutely tragic. I have never, you know, I want to emphasize this, I never thought I would live to see the day that I would be called the same thing by a, a presidential candidate that my parents were called when they lived in Europe uh, during the war years. Vermin. 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 Let's not forget that word. I was called vermin. Um, and what that means is what should we do about that is, uh, you know, I think that uh, uh, that we absolutely have to call it out whenever it, occur whenever it occurs, uh, like the demonstration that occurred in front of this uh, uh, Jewish uh, restaurant uh, in Philadelphia uh, yesterday, the day before yesterday, that Biden called it out. I think that's absolutely correct. That should be called out. I. Uh, I also believe that even more importantly is that there have to be uh, there has to be reaching out and uh, uh, between uh, uh, faith-based institutions, uh, particularly between synagogues and mosques. And I certainly hope uh, that there are listening sessions between both, and that there's demonstrations of uh, goodwill uh, between both to uh, counter some of this absolutely unacceptable. Uh, rise uh, in in the two phenomena that you've just uh, highlighted. Uh, uh, so that's, that's, it's interesting that you use the language rise. I keep hearing people talk about the rise in anti-Semitism and Islamophobia, and I, I can't help but wonder, is it really rising, or is it just sort of, have we given it permission by our previous, the four, uh, previous president uh, and those who, you know, just hate is sort of enabled now in a different way, and this war doesn't do anything to dampen that tendency. I wonder if it's just been simmering under the surface and it's coming out now. What do you think? I'm not an expert in terms of the data on anti-Semitism at the end of the day, or Islamophobia. At the end of the day, I'm a scientist. But the reality is, I have to believe that while there was certainly uh, large amounts of discrimination, and we know about that, against both Jews, uh, for example, uh, I myself, I'm a physician. There was a quota, you know, about Jews entering uh, medical school and so on and so forth. So this is all, you know, well-documented. But in terms of the percentages, I again, I don't know, but I have to hope, <laughs> I don't know if it's true, that in fact there's more now because we're giving, uh, because a, a prior president uh, gave license to it, essentially. But in fact, I don't know that data. I was struck some years ago, Norbert, when uh, I was on my way, or my wife and I, were, we were on our way to visit our daughter, uh, and we stopped for a day in Frankfurt, Germany, uh, as we were changing planes, uh, and on our way to Mauritius. And we went to the Jewish Museum in Frankfurt, which had an, a large exhibit talking about how what Hitler did was exploit all of the simmering anti-Semitism in Germany that existed for years. And what resonates for me about what's happening today is there is and has been for a long time, for decades and centuries perhaps in the United States, anti-Semitism simmering below the surface. And what Trump has done and what Trumpism does is say, it's okay we can use code words, but it's okay to exploit and target Jews now. And it's not just anti-Semitism, of course. The same thing occurs with regard to the 
hatred and vicious attacks on persons who are Muslim as well. So that I, I agree with that. So the question is, is people have said, what is to be done? And I believe that uh, it starts uh, with local efforts. Uh, uh, it starts with statewide efforts. Uh, it has to continue with national efforts of communication and listening and action together between faith-based institutions and groups that, that are being uh, uh, discriminated against. That for me, as far as I'm concerned, is the only way to go forward. And that is the mission of Healing Across the Divides, the organization which you founded, which mm -hmm. seeks to increase the capacity and the efficiency of local groups that are, uh, can work together to uh, build uh, a better network to promote health and uh, to fight poverty in the region that we're talking about and through that peace building. But it seems to me that the mission just got more difficult, didn't it? No question about it, uh, but it's not just more difficult. The situation since the, <laughs> I hate to uh, even, uh, you know, I had a, a laugh underneath my word, but the reality is since 2004, the situation has not gotten better. The situation has gotten worse. But again, to quote Charles Sykes, you know, we have hope. There's our Palestinian American, uh, our Palestinian representative in Ramallah is close friends with our Israeli representative who's a Russian immigrant to uh, Israel from 20 years ago. That for me gives me hope. Uh, the two of them working closely together. Uh, that's the response that I have. I can't impact and we as an organization, uh, and I'm very unimpressed by what other organizations have done to try to impact from the top down. We can impact from the bottom up. We can impact by working with communities. And that close friendship that currently exists between those two women gives me hope. Bill, in the last minute that we have, last question for Dr. Goldfield. What do you think we should do? We as individuals, we in Western Massachusetts, it feels, frankly, kind of hopeless. And you are not an optimist, but you're a realist. What's your view? What's your recommendation? I would say two things. Number one, I think uh, communities should work together uh, to fight against anti-Semitism and Islamophobia. I think that that's through whatever faith-based institutions you have. I think faith-based institutions and the community-based organizations uh, should be uh, inter interested. Uh, we did, even, the, <clears throat> even though it's challenging, we did encourage people in uh, our last email to write to their congressman, to demand a ceasefire, to release all the hostages. Uh, and I think that that's worthwhile doing. And to whatever extent it is the time of the uh, season of the giving, uh, give to the organizations that you believe um, are trying to uh, encourage uh, resolution or at least uh, improvement in those situations. And one such organization is Healing Across the Divides. Um, Dr. Nor Norbert Goldfield, thank you so much for all that you do. Thank you for being here on the show. And thank you for your realism. And listeners, thank you so much for joining us today. Remember like Norbert, not just talking the talk that's important, it's walking the walk. This is Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg on WHMP. 
You're a nonprofit doing good work in the community. You want to let people know? That's easy. Talk to Hannah. Tell her you want to have a PSA on WHMP. If you're a community nonprofit, WHMP helps you communicate. Have an event? Need donations? Volunteers? Talk to Hannah. She'll help you craft a message and we'll run it at no cost. Hi, it's Hannah. Email me at hward at whmp.com or call me at 586-7400. WHMP News, Information, and the Arts, and messages from community nonprofits. Do you love fishing, swimming, or boating, but hate the trash you find? Do you want to help protect clean water and wildlife? Whether you live near the Deerfield River, Millers, Westfield, Chicopee, or Connecticut, your local river needs you. Join the Connecticut River Conservancy and help us protect our rivers. Our rivers belong to all of us, and each of us has a responsibility. WHMP Northampton and WRSI HD2 Turner's Falls. WHMP.com on Northampton Radio Group Station. It's a 